The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, good morning. How are we? Everyone doing well? Um, if you are new with us or just visiting or you've just been away for a little while, um, through what we call the Advent season, we are looking at stories of Jesus that reflect what Advent is about, namely that Jesus came to be with people. And so we're picking out different stories uh, from the New Testament that really highlight that characteristic of Jesus. Um, and so this particular story, um, obviously we see him come to this, this lame man, uh, this person, but there's, there's lots of really, really helpful stuff in here. So what I want to do, I want to do, do a little bit of work on the, on the context, and then we're going to look at the particular man, we're going to look at the Pharisees, and then I want to look at three things that it tells us about Jesus. You with me? All right, the context. So, uh, as Carly read there, we saw that there was this feast of the Jews. But it says in verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic, uh, this pool is called Bethesda, uh, which has five colonnades. Now, uh, for some of you who have been here a while, you know a little bit of my story. But part of my story of becoming a Christian was investigating particularly stories in the Bible um, because some of them seem a little far-fetched. Does anyone kind of struggle with that before you were Christian? It was kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, Noah's Ark. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. Virgin birth, okay, that one's interesting. Okay, there's lots of different stories that sometimes you're like, that seems unrealistic. However, I had to wrestle with the fact that if God does exist and Jesus really is God, then all of these things are possible. Because the big, biggest miracle that there could ever be is a being that is uncreated creates everything out of nothing. Anything after that is less of a miracle, okay? Now, as I was reading and I was sort of working through some of these things, um, I read a number of books that were trying to disprove the, the account of the New Testament. And they would have different things that would say, see, this is why you can't trust this. And this is actually one of those stories, okay? The reason being is that when this was written, and in a number of centuries... There was no evidence that they could find of this story of this particular pool. So when the New Testament comes out later on, all the sort of skeptics are basically saying, how would this person have ever known about this pool? There's no geographical, there's no archaeological evidence for this pool, there's no scribal evidence for this pool. And so for a long, long time, there was a a use of this to accuse Christians of saying you can't trust the Bible. However, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that in due course and in due time, God will prove himself to be accurate. And this is once again what we have here because come 1915, we did some archaeological digs and what we found was during the, the time of Constantinople, there had been a, a, basically an, Ethan, uh, an Eastern Orthodox church was built. It had crumbled and so they started digging under this and what did they find under this particular Eastern Orthodox church? but some really, really large pools that were right near what is called the Sheep Gate. And so up until 1915, it was like maybe this happened, maybe this didn't, and so people didn't believe it. But then as they start to dig, as they start to realize, there were these different pools. Now, as they continued to dig, they found that there are all these colonnades, put all the colonnades together. It maps out to be that there was probably five big covers for these two pools with a bridge in the middle. Now, also, the pools are very, very deep. So what they realized was probably back in the day, there were probably deep, deep springs going under this pool. 
And that over time, this is kind of what was believed, is that those springs would occasionally ever bubble. I don't know if you've ever been to New Zealand and been in hot springs. Where you go somewhere, you kind of experience this, and it kind of at a certain point in time, the temperature rises and water comes up and, and bubbles. So they eventually found that there was archaeological evidence for a pool. This church, now I think I've got a, a picture, if we can go to the next slide. This, this church here you see kind of behind it, that's now called St. Anne's Church, that's there today. You can see the depths of these pools that were there. Now, there's a couple of things again in this. There was also no scribal evidence, so there was nothing referring to this particular pool except for in 1946 to 56 when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. There was this copper scroll and in it there was the name Beth Shaadtain, which basically translated is Beth Esda. Up until then, there was no reference of Beth Esda. But now they're finding scrolls. Then in 1970... More archaeological ex- excavations happened and what they found out is from some of these scrolls that they found there and some of the writings that there was a local uh, healing cult which continued into the second century that basically worshipped a god of healing who would heal people when the waters of certain pools would stir. And so we have archaeological evidence, we have scribal evidence and we have more <laughs> excavation and archaeological evidence that actually there was a pool back in Jesus' day and that the accounts of, of Jesus written by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John once again stand up. And so what's going on here? Well, you would have noticed as you read that and as you saw it on the screen, there was no verse 4. So any like super anal people were like, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. Like what happened to verse 4? Okay, this is why we're not a New King James or a King James only church. Um, there are different manuscripts that Bibles basically use to put together their, their, their versions of the Bible. So what happened in the early days when scribes were copying and writing the Bible, uh, in, in the manuscripts that the King James Version is based off, they actually added in verse 4, which seems to be something that was more of a commentary written in the side notes. And this is what it says for verse 4 in the King James For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool, troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So that was the belief in the day. Now what the ESV, NIV, New American Standard, what they do is they go, we don't think that's in the earliest manuscripts. We don't think that verse actually existed. So what we're going to do is we're going to basically leave it out and have a little note that says, hey, it seems like... It seems like that probably wasn't written into the scripture. It was a side note by a scribe saying this is what was going on. Okay? So you'll also notice if you read uh, the Gospel of Mark, you go all the way to chapter 16. At the end, there's a story between Jesus and, and the adulterous woman. The ESV will also put that in quotations to go, it seems to be the earliest manuscripts don't actually have that story put into it. So therefore, it's something that probably happened but wasn't initially written into the scriptures. So we're going to say it's there. So when we preach through the Gospel of Mark, as a church, we didn't preach that story because we are not sure whether that's really in the initial scriptures. Does that make sense? So just a, just a side note for all the nerds in the room who are really keen. So let's get on with the story. Okay, what's going on? Well, the Jews are basically being influenced by the pagans who have this idea that you can basically get healed if you have enough faith and get there in early enough. So basically you sit around this pool all day, every day, just waiting for this one moment, one day of the week, one month of the year, somewhere, somewhere, it's going to happen. And if you can get in there early enough, you get healed. Theory is, 
Maybe that happened to one person at one point in time. Maybe later on, all the people that are going in there and not getting healed, because you're pretty sure that happened a lot, right? Um, well, they do what often is done in, in today's day, which is go, well, you didn't have enough faith. <laughs> Sorry about that. If you just have more faith, you would have been healed. You got in there pretty quick, but your faith wasn't strong enough. And so the idea was, first in, best dressed, if enough faith, you get healed. All right, so that's kind of what's going on. Now, let's look at this man. This man has been an invalid. He's been, uh, either he cannot walk at all, or he's at least got massive amounts of issues with his body that he can't get there in time. For 38 years, he's wanted to be healed. We don't know at what age he started coming to the pool, but this is a pool where Jewish people, pagan people come all the time and they're just sitting around in the hope that one day they would get healed. So let's just say he's a minimum of 38 years old, right? Let's just say for 20 years he's been doing this. And every single time, that hope, that dream of healing is just somewhere out there that he can never get to. I don't know what you have been through. I don't know what it is that you go through. But I'm sure that everyone in this room has something in your life where you were just holding on to some form of hope that if God or something would just do something about this situation, I will be better. And so it shows us that he is weak and powerless. That's what literally the word invalid means. He's hopeless for 38 years. He's in this sad state of like, it's, it's just this carrot that's dangling before me that I'm never going to get. And he is so sad. He is so hopeless. He is so broken that when someone actually comes to him and says, hey, do you want to get healed? He's cynical. He's like, yeah, right. Like I'm ever going to have anyone help me get into the pool in time to get healed. And so you can hear the sad state of his heart, the sad state of his mental and emotional well-being. This man is broken. This man is hopeless. This man has no help, no family, no friends, and it's just all on him and he can't get out. Have you ever felt like that? And then what makes it better is you have the religious people. Again, last week. We highlighted just how much we love religious people. If you read the story of the Bible, religious people seem to overlook some really, really cool things. Like, for example, when a man who's been crippled for 38 years gets healed. So verse 9 says, And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. And I love this little, this little line. It's essentially saying, but it was the Sabbath. You can't get healed on the Sabbath. So, 38 years, only hope. Something actually finally happens after all those 30 years, but it just so happens that that happened on the wrong day, buddy. Oh, what, what a joyful bunch of people. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So he's got this mat that he lies on and he's picked it up. It's probably made out of some form of grass. And he's picking up and walking. Now, the religious elite, the, the Jewish Pharisees, they'd basically come up with 39 categories of work for the Sabbath. Okay, so you weren't allowed to take more than 800 steps. Okay, 
They didn't have our watches. They didn't have the step counter going on. Because like, that would have been helpful. It's like you'd set it a little bit early, like the daily count is going to be 750 steps. And don't go more than 50 steps away from your home so you can get back in time. It's like, I don't know who was counting the steps, but I'm sure there was one Pharisee who was sitting there just counting someone. It's like a 340, 300. I'm going to get you. It is not lawful for you to be taking up your bed. So this man is not resting. This man is not Sabbathing. This man is, in their mind, working on the Sabbath, which is a command that Jesus, through God in the Old Testament, has said, do not do. You are to rest. You are to take a day of rest and worship God. Don Carson says, in religious matters, there are none so blind as those who are always certain that they see. If you've ever met a religious person, there is an irony about the mirror in which they do not look because they are so easy and so able to pick out all of the flaws and all of the errors in everyone else while not being able to see their own faults. I hope that is not you. But these Pharisees are upset. And they're not just upset with the man because one thing for the man to be working... Now they're upset with the one who told the man to be working because that man is a threat to their religion. So as you saw there at the end, it goes on to say that this is why they start trying to find Jesus to kill him. Okay? The reason why Jesus goes to the cross theologically, we know is because God wanted to die for our sins. But for the Jewish religious elite, it's because he is claiming to know God the Father, be from God the Father, and is breaking all of the rules. And so they will kill him for that. They will put him to death. But then we get to Jesus. And there are three things here, I think, in this story that are just comforting and true and good to know and we forget all the time. Number one, I don't know if you noticed there in verse 6, but it says that Jesus knew. So verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. This is the way John is saying, not that someone has told Jesus about this man. It's not like a friend's come to him. You do see that in stories in the Bible where people come to Jesus and say, Hey, my daughter's unwell. Can you come and do this? This is not what John is saying. John is not saying someone's come and informed him. Someone's updated him. Someone's sort of said, pleaded for him. None of that. This is just Jesus knows because... For John, Jesus is God and he knows all things and he knows every single thing that is going on in our lives. What is the current thing that is weighing heavy on your heart today? What is it leading up to Christmas that is making you anxious, causing you worry, keeping your... Your mind ticking at night when you lay your head down on the pillow. What is that thing? What is the relational stuff that you are going through? What is the financial pressure that you are feeling? What is the, the unknowingness of what is to come next year? What, what are those things for you? What this story is saying is that Jesus knows that. That is on his mind. Now, again, we said this last week. It's one thing for us to go, God is aware of what's going on in Israel and Gaza. God knows what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. It is another thing to go, God knows what's going on in little bitty North Lakes and Kalanga and Morayfield, on that street, in that home, with that relationship. 
It is another thing to go, he's not only worried about these massive things in the world, he's also concerned, he's also thinking about the fact that you are struggling, that you are anxious. When I had my breakdown and I was basically in a fetal position, not able to get out of bed, I struggled to believe that God could care about me. And then as my wife just kept reading me the Psalms and Psalms and Psalms and Psalms, after a while you start realizing God is caring about me. And I learned through my struggle and through the Word of God that Jesus came for me. Second thing, Jesus cares. Right? Because it's one thing to know something, right? It's one thing that God can know everything. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything that's going on in our lives. It's another thing for him to actually care about that thing. So it's not just that he knows. Jesus cares about this man. Jesus cares that he has been laying there, desperate and needy, and he cares. It matters to God. The story tells us there, there is no indication that anyone invited Jesus. It's just that Jesus decided to go to the pool that day. If you read John, you'll see this all through John. The woman at the Samaritan well, one chapter earlier, the Samaritan woman at the well, she is not looking for Jesus, but Jesus is like, hey boys, you go do your thing, I'm going to a well and I'm going to speak and I'm going to meet and I'm going to encounter a Samaritan woman because I'm chasing after her because I care about her state. You'll see this time and time and time again as you read the stories of Jesus that he is going after people. He is pursuing people because he cares. One commentator by the name of Gerald Borchert, he says this. He says, when Jesus went to Jerusalem, he did not spend his time in elite hostels, nor did he concentrate his ministry merely in the temple or give attention to the rich and the famous who could help him politically and financially with his ministry. Jesus concentrated on people in need, which for the elite of society was part of their problem. Jesus cares about you. Not only does he go to the pool, later we saw that he then goes to the temple. So he's pursued the man. It says Jesus escaped. Okay, uh, The word there in the Greek, it's a really, really cool word. It's basically like he just disappeared into the mist. You know, It's just like he's just gone. It's like this really cool way of saying he's just like... Phew. And it's weird. I don't know why Jesus does that. It's like he heals him and he's like, bang, I'm gone. And then the man has no idea who's healed him. He doesn't know the story of Jesus because this is pretty early in, in the story of the Jesus' life. Jesus is just starting to do these miracles. He has no idea... But then the man, I, I think Jesus knew this, the man then goes to the temple. Why does he go to the temple? Well, because he's a Jew. And he's never been able to get to the temple. The temple is everything to a Jew. It represents everything for them. And he's never been able to go. And now that he is well, he is carrying his mat and he is off to the temple. And Jesus is not yet done with this man. Because he has healed him physiologically. But he's like, but we want to go a step further. I want to heal you spiritually. And if we don't deal with the sin issue, you won't be healed. And so it says afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. That word is meaning he is looking for him. And then Jesus says, see you are well, sin no more. Nothing worse may happen to you. Now just a side note here. 
If you read about the miracles in the New Testament, some miracles happen, and I will say, because of their faith, the person's faith. Your faith has made you well. Does this man have any faith? No, this man is miserable and cynical. So this man is healed despite his faith. Also, you'll see here that Jesus says, hey, there's something about the, the issue that you had, your, your illness was directly correlated with your sinfulness. Okay, but there's other times when they come to Jesus and go, is this man blind because of his own sin or because of his parents' sin? And Jesus is like, it has nothing to do with sin. So what often happens in sort of the, the healing kind of world is we try to formulate or make it a formula as this is how it happens all the time. So you're not well because you don't have enough faith. But if you read every single story in the New Testament, you're going to find that sometimes people have no faith. Sometimes it's their family member who has faith. Sometimes they have faith. Sometimes it's directly related to sin. Sometimes it has nothing to do with sin. Here's what we know about healing and sickness. We don't know. So here's what we do. Is if we are aware that we are sick, investigate and go, is there sin in my life? Are there things I need to get right with God and repent and get them right with God? Ask a question, do I believe God can heal me? How's my faith going? That's the bit that you can do. And then the rest of us, we just pray for each other all the time, hoping that God will heal. There is no formula. I can't teach you the methodology that goes to have a secret healing ministry. I'd love to. If you know that, please tell me so we can make a whole lot of money because I'd love to send handkerchiefs and see what we can get for them. That'd be awesome. Okay, that's my cynical self coming in. I'm so sorry. So Jesus is pursuing this man because Jesus knows his state, Jesus cares about his state, and then lastly, Jesus acts. Because again, it is one thing for God to know something about us. It's another thing for God to care about it. It's another thing altogether for God to do something about it. That's where the hope comes in. Because if God sees your stuff going on in your life, he cares about it, but he is powerless to act, it is no good to us. If Jesus sees that we're sinners, wants to help reconcile us to God the Father, but can't do anything about it, we are in trouble. Amen? That's true. So what we need is a God who sees and knows. We need a God who cares and a God who acts. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus acts. What is Jesus' response to this man's horrible theology? Does he correct it? Does he try to tidy it up and fix it? So, sorry, I can't heal you. We can't do that until we work out. You need to know what justification is. We need to talk about atonement and sort that stuff out. Then we need to get to like the sanctification and then glorification. What's your ecclesiology? You know, what's your pneumatology? Like, we need to work out all of these things and then you can kind of become, you know... No, no, he just goes, get up, walk, take your mat. In other words, Jesus doesn't try and fix up all of our stuff before he acts for us. You see this over and over and over again. He just comes and acts and he'll fix us up on the way. God is not waiting for you to clean yourself up. God is not waiting till all of your theological premises and all that are like... It's not that those things aren't important. They are, but he's not waiting for it. He acts. I didn't believe in God. And if I did, I thought maybe he existed and was like some... I was more of like a... Almost like a deistic sort of view. He's out there somewhere. He's just keeping things ticking along. Yet, despite my bad theology, Jesus died for me. Jesus pursued me. Despite my bad character and my sinful state... Jesus pursued me. 
Jesus went after me. He didn't wait till I sorted all that out. He came. That's what John is showing you here and through the stories that he starts to show us. Jesus keeps coming to broken people and helping them and healing them and restoring them. And just as 38 years proved the gravity of the disease and the problem that this man has, so the carrying of the bed and the walking proved the completeness of the cure. Jesus heals him completely. He hasn't walked in 38 years. And here he goes. I love that. And then later on we see, as the Pharisees come to Jesus, they challenge him that he is healing, he is working, he is doing things, and he is telling others to to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Carly and I, uh, we work on two different timelines. This is one of the joys of our marriage. We, we have a different perception of time. I don't know if any other married couples have the same thing. There are like things that we are like really tight with and there are things that like we are really, really different. So, so to me, seven, 7 o'clock, if there's an event at 7 o'clock, that means we get there at like 6.45. That's the timeline. Okay, that's the Britishness in me. Okay, for Carly, it means like 7.15. So we have this half an hour gap that we've just been trying to work out together for so long. So please pray for us. Um, it seems like my son got my timeline and, and we're different. Um, Jesus and the Pharisees are operating on different timelines. They're saying it's not the time to work. And Jesus is like, I'm working, buddy. I'm here to work. Father's still working. I'm working. That, that there, right there, is like the thing that's going to get him put on a cross. Because what he's saying is, is there is stuff to be done. There is work to be done. And what I'm doing is I'm doing the work to bring this broken world and put it back together. This is me recreating the world. This man was broken. This man had nothing but broken legs. He couldn't get there. He is weary. He is sorrowful. He is cynical. And I am putting him back together. And worse than that, he was a sinner separated from the Father. And I am coming to him saying, Hey, repent, turn to me, follow me, sin no more. And this is what the little baby came into the world to do. To put the world back together. That little baby in Mary's womb, birthed into this world, was here to restore all things back to himself. And if you've been a Christian for a little while, I hope this is part of your story. That Jesus is continuing to put us back together. That some of the things that are in our past, some of the family things, some of the family of origin stuff, some of the the things we've experienced in this life, that God is healing us. God is restoring us. And God is putting things back together. So what do we do? We keep following Jesus. Keep trusting Jesus. Because Jesus restores marriages. Jesus can restore minds and emotions Jesus restores brokenness between family members. Jesus is the king of restoring. Trust him. Follow him. Surrender to him. 
and experience his kindness and his grace as he keeps working in on you and me. Amen? And so when we come today to communion, we're coming to the God who, who knows our plight, cares about our plight, has done something for it and continues to do something for us. Let us pray. Dear Lord, everybody in this room is broken. Everybody in this room has sin. Everybody in this room is needy of you. And God, the big difference between those who get to experience you and those who don't is just that acknowledgement that we need a saviour. We need a redeemer. We need one who will help come and restore. And we have story after story after story in the New Testament where you are healing people, restoring people. And Father, this story of this man stuck, unable to get out, no hope in the world, is a story that we can recognize and we can identify with and say, if that man has hope in Jesus, we can have hope in Jesus because we might be stuck. We might feel like we can't get out of whatever it is, but you are the God who knows, you are the God who cares, and you are the God who acts. And Father, we pray that you would act on our behalf once again. And Lord, may this be to all your glory your praise, your goodness, because there is none other than you who can do anything about our state. And you went to a cross and you died so that we could be in a relationship with the Father. And our souls and our hearts could start to be put back together again. And we thank you, Jesus, that you came for us. Now we want to turn to you and worship you and praise you and lift you up for you are good and you alone are good. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.